I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history... We talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. Alex, go on, go for it. Who we got on? Today we've got a very, very special guest. He's written a number of books um, on the history of beer and pubs. He once went on a pub crawl which took in more than 300 bars in 13 countries and gained a stone in weight. He's brewed and transported beer to India via sea. He's the British author, journalist, award-winning writer, broadcaster and consultant who specialises in food and drink, Pete Brown. Hello, Pete. Hello. You came back after coming down the pub with us. That's quite an achievement for us. Usually we <laughs> terrify people. No, it was great. I loved it. And I went and watched um, Apollo 11 the following day as well. So oh, it brilliant. was inspirational. Cool. Um, how is lockdown since last week? It's good. I've just finished the first draft of a book that I set myself for the task of writing during lockdown. So uh, celebrating the other night after getting the first draft printed out. Just got to wait and see if it's any good or not, mate. God, you're so quick. I've not even managed to do an introduction for my George V book on lockdown. So what is the book? Uh, It's called Craft and Argument. And uh, there's a lot of debate about the definition of craft beer and whether it really is craft beer and all this kind of thing. And I decided to research the history of craft as a discipline or a concept or whatever and try and locate beer within that discipline. Uh, And and you see it in a very, very different way. Uh, It's all about... um, you know, how we see the world, how we relate to the world and, and how we make sense of us, ourselves rather than just what kind of hops you're putting in the beer. Oh, there's going to be two guys that are sitting here chomping at the bit that are going to be very excited to read that book. Because basically, Pete, Alina and I love you. We think you're great. Um, but we're not really that bothered Mutual. about beer. <laughs> we're just, I mean, I used to have a paddy if it got on me in the bar and I smelt of Foster's. And Alina's only interested if she's drinking it. So we have basically brought your two biggest fanboys on today, which is our Down the Pub judges, um, Holmes and Dyer, who are so, so excited to quiz you about everything they've read in all of your books. Uh, Holmes has just been telling us off air that he has obsessively got hold of uh, You just said you think he might be the first person to get a copy of your new book yeah it was published yeah the paperback it was published on the 23rd of april and last time i checked it wasn't available anywhere so uh uh, i think covid has has screwed up uh, book warehousing and delivery so uh andrew's the first person to get it that i've heard of brilliant well so i'm just going to hand over to him holmes you take charge alina and i are here we're listening we're learning but um this one's for you buddy yeah hopefully by the end of this you two may even fancy a bit but let's let's see where we end up (laughs) so pete in the first few pages of your man walks into a pub book it contains a list of 118 words or short term or short short terms 
the British used to describe drunkenness, things like bladdered, half-cut, lashed, that type of thing. And I remember reading it for the first time and thinking, this is a book I'm going to like. How long did it take <laughs> you to put that list together? Um, it was a labour of love. I think the full list is about a thousand words long. Uh, and it was, it, I think we did it over about four years at the end. It's got to be a great thing to do. I mean, you probably get this all the time and you may have updated it in the second edition, but I can't believe you've missed out shitted. <laughs> I mean, basically take any expletive you like and someone's used it somewhere to describe the state of getting drunk. In fact, in the book, I go on to say that you can take any word at random. Um, and if you put the ED suffix at the end, it'll work. We got tabled. We got, um, we got walked. We, we got gardened and people know what you're talking about. Well, that was yeah. Michael McIntyre did a whole stint on that in his first tour, didn't he? And they were actually selling whole... T-shirts saying, I'm utterly car parked. Yes, a whole 10 years after my book was published. That's oh, all I'm saying. <laughs> Swine. Swine. <laughs> it gets all his best stuff from me, does McIntyre. <laughs> but I thought originally it might have been out of politeness. But then when I went down the list, you know, you did include twatted and fucked and others related to the sea bomb. Yes, yes. Uh, some of which, if I ever do a third edition, I may not include again. Um, times are changing, but uh, I think <laughs> there's enough there for people to get the idea anyway. Okay, before we start, we thought it might be worthwhile if you can give us a quick overview as to how beer is made, as it's something that quite even a lot of beer drinkers aren't aware of. It really is. I saw a survey uh, when I was writing my last book about beer, Miracle Brew, that showed that 22% of beer drinkers can name the four main ingredients of beer. Uh, which is really bizarre, um, and they are hops, barley, yeast, and water. And the reason that's relevant from a history point of view is the history of brewing is really the, the history of malting. It's all about where you get the fermentable sugars to make uh, alcohol from. So if you want to make wine out of grapes, it's really easy. You get some grapes, you, you crush them, uh, wild yeast on the skins will ferment the sugar, turn it into wine. To make uh, beer out of grain, you've got to go through a quite a tortuous process called malting because uh, beer doesn't want uh, the, the grains that we use, mainly malted barley, they don't want the sugars to be uh, eaten by animals. So they store it as long chain starches. So we have to go through this really complicated process of uh, wetting the grain and drying it again, basically waterboarding it, sort of almost drowning it, then pulling it out, and then putting it back in again. And then you dry it out on a long floor, and that releases enzymes that turn the sh 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 sorry enzymes that turn the starches into fermentable sugars so it's a really complicated process which is why people don't really talk about it enthusiastically uh, you tend not to see romantic pictures of people uh, working malting floors the way you do people training wine grapes um, but we couldn't so make to, beer. just to sim just to simplify it you are you trying to imitate the german at the start of the germination process i imitate the german <laughs> the ger germination Oh yes, yes, absolutely. You're trying to trick the dr you're trying to trick the grain into thinking that it's germinating. Uh, all the all the stuff you do to it is to is to make the grain think that it's uh, in the right conditions to start sprouting and to grow. And once it's done that, we then kill it. So so malting is basically the uh, torture and genocide of lots of baby barley plants. All in a good cause, though. All in a good cause. Uh, there are casualties in brewing. But, but like I said, the thing is that this, this requires uh, a permanent kit. It requires you to have big, flat floors, uh, heated surfaces. And you can't get those uh, if you're riding around having a nomadic existence on horseback. So there's a big theory that in order to malt grain to make barley to make beer, uh, we, uh, that's why we settled down into permanent communities for the first time. 
And then in addition to in addition to the barley, you've obviously got water, hops, and yeast as well. Yeah. So we dissolve the we dissolve the barley, or we, we soak the barley. Then we mash it uh, in water. Uh, that extracts all these sugars. Uh, then you take the uh, you take the sugary water off the grain. Um, you then probably well these days you add hops, but that's a we'll, we'll talk about that. That's a fair, relatively recent addition. Uh, and then you let it ferment and all that sugar, you add, add yeast and all that fermentable sugar turns to alcohol. So there's your four basic ingredients. So if we, if we go way back in time then, when do we think beer was first brewed? So it's not an exact science because um, there's very little documentary evidence of brewing. Um, there's quite a lot of archaeological existence. Uh, so there's quite a lot of archaeological evidence, but that's quite recent. Um, using carbon dating techniques, when a, when a vessel is uh, used for brewing, it leaves behind calcium uh, silicate, uh, which, or beer stone. And that's evidence that people were brewing with it. And since we developed the techniques of carbon dating that, it's like this arms race. The first date of brewing is getting pushed back and back and back. So when I first started writing Manwalks into a pub, the consensus was that brewing started around 3000 BC because um, that's when the first written evidence of it exists. And then by 2004, that date had gone back to about 7,000 BC uh, with uh, archaeological evidence discovered in China. Uh, and I think now we're talking about somewhere between nine and 10,000 BC. Uh, in the last 18 months, uh, molting floors have been discovered in Israel, uh, which were probably used uh, for beer. If not beer, then it's hard to think what else they were used for. Blimey, and then how would that beer resemble anything we're familiar with today? Not most of us, no. Um, but if you were to go to the, uh, if you were ever in um, Johannesburg and you go to the uh, Museum of Brewing there, uh, beer is still made in African townships in a very similar way to how it used to be made. And basically, you get this wet grain, it's in a pot, it's like a, a grain porridge, and then you stir it with a stick that's got uh, yeast. Uh, cultures living on it and allow it to ferment for a few days uh, you have to drink it within a few days or it goes off uh, it looks like white porridge it tastes uh, sour and milky uh, and sort of like a an oval team that's gone off basically yeah. uh, so it's, <laughs> it's an acquired taste i mean surely it's only a matter of time before that reappears on the craft beer market as some sort of falafel and scarab beetle ipa I'm amazed it hasn't already to tell you this. And also, in ancient times, did they? How much did they drink? Quite a lot. Um, I mean, there's a big uh, debate about uh, beer being used as a substitute for water, um, about people not being able to get clean water, and, and there's a bit, a bit of a ding dong about it because people say, well, of course you used to be able to get clean water in ancient times. There was no pollution like there is now. But you'd get pollution pretty quickly around any area where people were living uh, in towns and cities and things like that. So, yeah, they drank quite a bit. There's some evidence that the ancient Egyptians were, were huge drinkers. Um, they used beer to pay uh, the slaves who built the pyramids. Going further back from that, you've got the uh, Sumerians. That's where a lot of the earliest evidence of, of brewing is. And just from the records we've got, they seem to enjoy a party, definitely. And with that in mind, there's also references to hangover cures going back, isn't there? Way back. There is, yes. Um, uh, I, I don't know how liberal people have been with the translations here, but the Egyptians uh, were talking about um, boiled cabbage uh, as, a, uh, a, as a hangover cure. There is, 
Eublis, a writer around 400 BC, and then in the second century, Athenius also said that uh, take some boiled cabbage when you wake, there's the end of your headache. Except that, like you, I said, I'm sure he didn't do it rhyming in English, like English language at the time. <laughs> no, you, you've never been tempted to try the old boiled cabbage remedy. Weirdly enough, I haven't, no. <laughs> I, think that may, yeah, I think that's understandable. And as well as, as, well as having beer, they, they're sort of paraphernalia associated with beer as well, isn't there, from those times? They had barmaids and even sort of beer advertising has been found, hasn't it? Yeah, apparently so. Apparently so. Uh, you know, there's something like drink, drink this beer with the heart of a lion, things like this. Um, it, it, beer features really commonly in a lot of old um, uh, glyphic-based languages uh, like... Um, uh, like Sumerian and, and like ancient Egyptian, um, beer did have its own hieroglyph in, in Egyptian times, and you, and you do get you do see some things which do strongly resemble hangovers, uh, sorry, hangover slogans. Some some sentences that do strongly uh, resemble beer ads. And then I, I think also as well, I think you said you but the Babylonians had the first barmaids. Yes, I would have to check this, uh, and a lot of this is. Uh, when I wrote Man Works into a Pub, I, I didn't question my sources too closely. <laughs> uh, uh, but but this, this is stuff that's kind of gone around uh, fairly consistently, uh, that they had barmaids, uh, that they had bars, and uh, a lot of stuff that we recognise today. And that doesn't really surprise me. I, th I, think, there's a, I think beer creates a, a kind of behaviour around itself. I think if you look anywhere people drink beer, uh, they on the surface, customers might, a bit different but what's beneath them in terms of kind of social bonding is incredibly consistent so uh, it's not surprising that people would have had the same thoughts the same emotions the same sort of attitudes around it that, that we have now i mean i think there was a slight difference because you wrote that they had barmaids and also that the the penalty that barmaids got for serving short measures was death by drowning i think it was absolutely a slight my yeah. god i would have been buggered i short poured everyone who didn't <laughs> say please <laughs> <laughs> this is a common thing throughout the history of beer um short measures are the ultimate sin you know it's it's uh, i think there's a there's also a medieval morality play um where all these sinners turn up at uh, the gates of heaven and jesus uh, spares and forgives every single one of them apart from the bar person who served short measures and they go straight to hell well, when I was growing up, there was the phrase sort of heads, uh, heads means holidays, which meant you served slightly less so you don't get the full head, and then that pays for the landlord's holiday. <laughs> I mean, it still goes on today. You know, the, the guys in, uh, in camera are very particular about their... Uh, uh, the, 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 the liquid must be 95% of the total volume in the glass and stuff. I, I tend to have a, a different view, which is that the head is part of the beer. I mean, yeah, it's taking the piss a little bit if it's like a, a, over an inch wide. But um, when you drink beer through the head, uh, the head releases all the volatile hop aromas. And so you actually get a more aromatic, satisfying pint of beer when it's got a decent head on it than if it's just, you know, London style with the kind of meniscus of the beer at the top of the glass. So you've got yeah. to balance it. Yeah, no, I'm with you because, you know, if you've got an absolutely full glass, by the time you've got back to your seat or even where you're standing, you've lost that anyway, haven't you? Yeah, and you're, you're from um, Burton, aren't you? Or just I am, near Burton. Yeah, yeah. It's, Burton's kind of the interesting no-man's land because um, you know, in the north we serve beer with a sparkler in order to, to guarantee this tight, foamy head. Uh, and in the south, uh, you know, a head is, is non grata. And I find that around Burton-on-Trent, that's, that's the real thing from pub to pub. It's going to vary whether you get a head or not. It is. And also, I mean, I remember, you know, when I've lived there for about 20 years, um, my, da my, my dad 
half of his mates worked in the brewery sort of thing. My dad didn't work in the brewery sort of thing, but just in, they had a really mixed group. Some of them would get stuff from the keg downstairs in the cellar. So the landlord knew them and he was happy to go and do that. One of them used to take his own sort of spark sprinkler head with him so he could have his own, yeah, own sort yeah, of yeah. perfect quality head with him. So yeah, it's, there really is a mixture around there. Absolutely, absolutely. You see, you're seeing a, a historical argument being played out in real time in one town. It's quite a fascinating place. Yeah, definitely. Well, we're going to come on to Burton a bit more later. But if we, what's quite interesting is, you know, beer is associate, associated with the earliest civilizations, but then it seems to become somewhat marginalised by history. Yeah, um, I think I, I blame the Romans mainly. Um, uh, if you look across Europe, uh, there's a, a line, uh, a kind of temporal climactic line and below that line grapes go better grow better than barley and above that line barley grows better um and so the romans uh had a fairly dim view of beer it's i mean to some extent they, they had a goddess um uh i've forgotten her name but it's so where we get the we, ceres ceres uh, the goddess of cereals where we get cerveza the uh, the sort of latin word for beer from um but they roman society definitely valued wine uh, far above beer and most of the western civilized world has retained that to this day you know it was also helped by much later by the french kind of becoming thought leaders in global cuisine and and them kind of uh, putting wine with food rather than beer i fully believe that if if cereals grew better in uh, large parts of france than grapes did that we'd now be seeing beer menus across the world in every decent restaurant. And, you know, you'd be having Appalachian control aid, um, West African pale ales instead of IPA and all this kind of stuff. Well, hopefully it's the dream we can still all aspire to. I was going to say, you and Johnny are getting slightly <laughs> excited about that, aren't you? <laughs> I, I could definitely live with that. It's far easier to understand than wine. There's no question about that. <laughs> yeah. I think it's so interesting because it can be it can be very, very straightforward and simple and basic. And I think that's why it gets written off by a lot of people. But it can also be extraordinarily complex uh, and, and just as intriguing as, as, as fine wine. Uh, beers can age uh, the way that vintage wines can age. Um, beer's got a much broader range of possible flavours because you're working with these four ingredients, not, not just the, the grapes that you're growing. Um, hops and barley obey terroir the same way that, that that grapes do so so my big kind of um quest i guess my crusade is is not f to argue that beer is better than wine I, I i drink an absolute ton of wine especially at home uh but that beer should be treated with the same respect that wine is do you um do, just to jump in do you, do you think there's a sort of a class element to that as well there is um and that's a that's a fake construct really this idea that uh, beer is the drink of the working people uh whereas wine is more refined uh, again that goes back to norman times when everything french is more uh, upper class and everything uh, anglo-saxon is, is more lower class um and it was reinforced really like i guess we're going to talk about the industrial revolution in a bit but but when people moved from the land into big factories and and so on um for the first time you had large groups of large single sex groups of men descending to the pub en masse and that really helped reinforce this idea of beer being the the working man's drink mm. i mean you can sort of see it now really even with um with craft beer really some craft beer can be quite expensive you know tenner a can type thing and people are sort of astonished that you would pay that but it's just the same as wine isn't it really that's the way i look at it 
Well, that's it. And I, I wrote a piece about this a couple of years ago. Uh, Brooklyn Brewery uh, in the States, one of my favorite breweries, and they brewed a, an imperial stout that was coming in at about 10%. And they aged it in Californian Shiraz uh, barrels for a year. So you're tying up quite a bit of capital there, brewing a really strong beer, aging it in these barrels. And, and the barrel aging, you've then got the character of the wood, you've got the character of the original beer, you've got the character of the microflora that are living in the wood, plus the character of the wine that's been sitting in those barrels, all combining in a way that the brewer can guess at, but not really control. And this thing that comes out is kind of wine strength with the complexity of wine. And my local was selling it at three pounds for a third of a pint. And people were outraged at, uh, at how expensive this was because it was only beer. And I pointed out that this was uh, tasted like wine, was matured in wine barrels, was the same strength as wine, and that a third of a pint is slightly larger than a 175 mil glass of wine. And you find me, a pub in the UK, where you're going to get a 175 mil glass of really decent wine for three quid. I said, it's not overpriced, it's an absolute bargain. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So we've talked about the Middle East, so, um, and obviously we're here in Europe. So how did beer make its way from sort of the Middle East over to here? There is some conjecture about that, because I think we assume that if, some, if there's evidence of something in the Middle East in 3000 BC, and then the first evidence of it in Europe is, you know, say, 1000 BC or 200 AD or something like that, we assume that it must have somehow travelled from point A to point B. And when I was writing Man Walks Into a Pub, um, I did what everyone does and said that um, it was probably the ancient Phoenicians. Oh, I'd, I'd love to know more about the ancient Phoenicians because they seem to be responsible for everything, um, including the establishment of Ibiza as a party island. Um, but um, but so, so as traders, they may have brought the first beer to the UK, to, to Europe rather. Um, but it's just as likely now, I think, that we developed malting technology and brewing technology independently of, of the Middle East and maybe we were just a little bit behind them uh, but we worked it out for ourselves. You, you do see techniques like this emerging simultaneously sometimes at different parts of the world without connection between each other. So in terms of ancient Britons then what, what would they have drunk? Would we recognize that? I mean the first things were you know when it was mostly forested uh, the first thing we would have drunk was was mead probably uh, followed by cider uh, beer really probably came across with the Anglo-Saxons around 400 AD and it would have been pretty different to what we've got now. Uh, I'm not sure how similar it would have been to the old African uh, porridge stuff because we would have been using barley rather than than sorghum. Uh, we were probably malting the barley. Uh, some friends of mine in uh, Ireland have found what they believe to be ancient maltings going back to about 2000 BC. So we're probably drinking a malted barley drink, which would have been flavoured with all sorts of different herbs, basically whatever they found in hedgerows to give it some more flavour and some more complexity. Uh, bog myrtle and yarrow are the two that I can, uh, can remember. Uh, which sound quite tempting. I, I won't mind a bog myrtle and yarrow beer, come to think of it. No, definitely. And that was done you know, in, in people's homes. They just brewed for themselves in there and their immediate neighbours or something like that. Yeah, it was very much an activity that happened in the home, uh, the same way uh, baking did. Um, and then gradually people develop specialisms, you know. It's like, I might be trying to brew my best... Uh, I might, might be trying to brew beer and bake bread. I might bake a much 
nicer loaf of bread than my neighbour, but they make better beer than me. So why don't I just bake bread and give them some bread and get some of their beer in return? So very gradually you see the emergence of this uh, th- this economy and um, and also of, of alehouses. Uh, the, the story goes that you know people used to put these big sticks up outside their door and when when you made beer you put a big stick up to say that the beer was ready and when people were uh, were, were coming to pick up the beer they ended up hanging around and drinking some uh, rather than just buying their purchase and going on their way and so these houses would become enlarged and you had the first ale houses uh, which became the first public houses I mean, Johnny has used the excuse of just pop- popping out for a loaf for many years now and it yeah, still yeah. works, still works <laughs> to this day it's a hell of a big loaf Yes. So if we move on, if we move on a little bit in history, then I mean, there's not much in the way of written records from the Middle Ages and the post-medieval no. period. But what do we know about the development of beer in that time? Um, we know that um, that there's, there's there's a bit of a uh, a kind of argument to the sexes here in that uh, in the home brewing was always an activity that was expected of women to do. So the, the best brewers of the Middle Ages were brewsters, female brewers, um, and then the rise of the monasteries kind of took over the momentum in brewing because uh you know if you're kind of living in a patriarchal society uh that goes up to a male god then beer is far too important to be left to the women and so the men had to kind of take control of it and monasteries had to be self-sufficient so they had to brew their own beer uh, as well as growing their own vegetables and everything else and then as pilgrimages became more popular uh they needed beer to serve to travelers as well uh so they started brewing they were the first people to brew on a on a larger scale and so they kind of got the technology a bit better and got a bit more consistency between batches and, and things like that and also i think the point that you keep coming back to in your in your book is that until there was technological advantages technological advances that there was really little control over beer. It was just sort of put all the ingredients in a hope for the best. You didn't know how strong it was going to be. That's it. Uh, I mean, even today we suffer from uh, variations in, you know, one, one barley harvest to the next or, or hops from different fields or whatever. And um, when you were brewing as and when you needed it, uh, you weren't storing yeast in a laboratory or anything like that. Um, you were basically relying on spontaneous fermentation just with the yeast that was in the air. And I mentioned these sticks before. People didn't know what yeast was. Um, they uh, they just assumed it was magic. Uh, when you finish brewing and there's a kind of uh, coat of yeast on the, a cap of yeast on the top of the brewing fermentation vessel, that stuff wasn't there when you put those ingredients in. And now it's there. It seems to have appeared as if by magic, and it's transformed the beer. So people call it God is good. That, that was the name of it. They didn't know what else to call it. And um, from their perspective, it was obvious that brewing was a miracle. And if you try to go back to those people and say, well, no, it's not a miracle. What it is, is these, is these microscopic fungi that are so small you can't see them. And what they do is they eat the sugar in the water and then they excrete alcohol and carbon dioxide. I think you'd have been left out of the room. And yeah. I think people said, no, sorry, sorry, mate, a miracle by God sounds like a far more plausible explanation than that. And sorry, so what, what, what that meant was that you're relying on spontaneous fermentation, you're relying on wild yeast, you've got no control over what character that fermentation gives it. And when you get, then get commercial brewing, you're pitching yeast from one brew at the end of one brew into the start of the next brew. And so the yeast culture starts to evolve uh, to suit your the, the space that you're brewing in and it's only when you get continuous brewing that you start to get some consistency in beer which is about the 15th century 
And, and monks, they started putting hops in beer, didn't they? They're the ones who are responsible for the basic beer recipes. We know it today. Yeah, so Hilde, Hildebrand von Bingen, who was a, 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 an abbot at a monastery in Germany, um, I, I think hops always used to be part of that cocktail of hedgerow um, plants that went into beer. You know, they were there along with everything else. They're a wild, creeping plant. Uh, but Hildegard was the first person to write saying that hops had, had other benefits apart from just being part of this flavour cocktail. And she realised that if you added a lot of hops to beer, it helped preserve it. Now, this is absolutely crucial for the development of modern beer because before hops were used predominantly, uh, the only way to preserve beer was to make it really strong in alcohol. You know, a 10% beer is going to last a lot longer than a than a four percent beer and as soon as they realized that hops which act as kind of uh natural disinfectant uh as soon as they realized that hops preserve the life of beer you could make weaker beers which meant that people could drink more of it and you could use less barley per batch um because you're getting less alcohol uh so you could make more of it and you make it more cheaply so so that really set beer on its course as being something that we drink uh by volume uh and it's quite cheap and affordable but even then there was a sort of two camps some people preferred beer without without hops and some people preferred it with yes uh so there was a big uh, debate <laughs> a big debate around the 15th century in the uk uh because um Yes, around the 15th century, you got the Huguenots uh, fleeing religious persecution in Europe, and they came over to uh, England, bringing their, their filthy hops with them. Uh, we didn't like um, this dirty foreign beer. It was terrible. Uh, people were doing big, big uh, propaganda campaigns against it, talking about how it poisoned you, uh, it made you flatulent, it made you lazy, it made you stupid. Um, but despite all that uh, anti-European propaganda, it kind of caught on. So at, at that point, uh, ale was beer that didn't have hops in it and beer was the name of this fancy new European thing which was never going to catch on uh, but eventually it did Yeah, because Henry VIII didn't like it and he instructed his court brewer not to use hops Yeah, there's a, there's a misunderstanding that he banned hops beer in the UK uh, He didn't quite do that but you're right, he, he prevented his uh, palace brewers from ever using hops in their beer and it wasn't the only one, it was quite a common practice among more sort of uh, shall we say, jingoistic um, nobles in England. Well we're, well, we're still talking about monks. Foreign monks, they, they basically invented lager, as we know it, didn't they? They did. Uh, lager is a different kind of yeast than ale yeast. Um, ale yeast likes to ferment quickly at higher temperatures. Uh, it leaves a bit of residual sugar in the beer, and it gives you this kind of, what we call in the trade, an, an estery aroma. That's that kind of fruity aroma that you get off ales. Uh, whereas lagers are, are crisper and cleaner, and the reason for that is that they prefer to ferment at colder temperatures, uh, but they ferment for a lot longer. They eat more of the complex sugars, leave a, leave a cleaner, crisper brew than ale. And it was uh, monks in the, uh, uh, the, the Weinstefan University, which still exists outside, uh, just outside Munich. That's, that's the oldest continuously operating brewery in the world. And it was around that part of the world where they realized that if they stored their beer while it was fermenting in cool, dark caves, uh, they got this lager yeast coming to the fore and this, this crisper, cleaner beer style. So the word lager comes from the German to store, to, to, to denote the fact that it's um, uh, beer that takes longer to brew. So it's not about lager being cold and ale being warm or, or lager being blonde and ale being brown. It's, it's, it's this kind of storing, this, because it's what this different kind of yeast prefers. Henry VIII, he didn't like 
he didn't like beer with hops, but his dissolution of the monasteries inadvertently gave beer a bit of a boost in this country, didn't it? Yeah, I love how we call it dissolution. I was just thinking about this when I was writing uh, Hops and Glory, because it's a, it's a wonderful word for the state of being drunk, as, as well <laughs> as being... Uh, as well as being about what we're headed to the monasteries and so he, you know, he, in a way he democratized brewing uh, by taking it out of the monks hands we, we had to very quickly get our beer from elsewhere and so you start to get the first of the the, the common brewers as, as they were called um brewing commercially without any kind of tie to religious orders and I, I, you may or may not remember this but i love the story from your book about the two receivers that he sent to burton when they were when they were going to dissolute the monastery <laughs> yes there. They put yes. in a pretty. They put in a pretty impressive expenses claim. Yeah, I did. I did find this out just before we came on air, and um, yeah, they had when they put their expenses in when they got back uh, from Burton uh, after a few days there. Uh, they put an expenses claim in for one bottle of wine and forty-seven gallons of ale, <laughs> uh, which apparently Richard Goodrick and John Scudamore managed to get through between them. They were going to need an awful lot of boiled cabbage by the time we got back to London. They I certainly think. were. It was th thirsty business destroying monasteries. <laughs> and then whilst we're talking about the Tudors, Elizabeth I, she was fond of strong beer as well, wasn't she? She was. I mean, to some extent, you know, we always, we always credit the royals with superhuman powers. But, uh, but apparently uh, when she was touring the country, it was common for, for monarchs at that time to, to go on very long tours around the country and stay at different people's manor houses when it was, you know, it was an honour to be chosen to basically have the Queen come and eat you out of house and home with her retinue for several weeks without paying you anything for it. And uh, people had to order this special beer in uh, when Queen Elizabeth was coming. Uh, she was credited with being able to, to drink more and drink stronger beer than any man in her court could. I mean, that probably explain, explains why she walked around in her later years with her breasts exposed. I mean, historians thought <laughs> for years... Historians thought for years that was to indicate her purity and her state of virginity, but it's probably the result of starting each day with three cans of the Tudor equivalent of Skull 1080. Absolutely. <laughs> and she must, have been thinking, she must have been thinking, no one's going to mess with me. Come on, have a go. <laughs> I think so. If you can't do that when you're queen, when can exactly. you? Exactly. <laughs> Holmes does that on a normal Saturday evening at home. I do. I don't get as much attention, though. Not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> So we've talked a bit about beer and how it originated. Now if we switch over to the pub. So the British pub, as we know and love it and miss it, particularly at the moment, that's evolved from a mixture of a number of drinking establishments throughout history. We think are basically the same thing, but in fact they're different. They originated at different times. Yeah, everything about beer and pubs gets confused after a while. I, I can't think why that would be. Um, but for about the last 200 years, when we talk about the pub, uh, we've used the names in tavern alehouse public house uh, interchangeably uh, as if they're just different names for the same thing and you see that in pub names today all around the country inns taverns and alehouses used to be three distinct classes of establishments and they used to be taxed differently they used to be um, licensed differently uh, by the state so alehouses i talked briefly about those are these kind of organic um places that made and sold beer and gradually grew and put a few chairs in whatever uh, and had people in, into their front rooms. Um, and from that, we get that kind of homely nature of the pub uh, that, that we recognise from any, any good pub today. Inns were quite different. They started off with the monasteries, like I said, where people were, um, were travelling for pilgrimages. I mean, we didn't used to go on holiday. We went on a pilgrimage, pilgrimage instead. Uh, and so inns began as establishments within inside the monasteries. Um, by the time the monasteries were dissolved, uh, there was 
enough travel anyway that we still needed inns. So inns were these massive establishments um, that were that offered uh, obviously stables for the horses, rooms for the guests, uh, food, uh, drink, storage, commercial services, banking services, um, and so they were a very very different uh, proposition from the from the basic alehouse. And then taverns. Sorry, go on. Sorry, Pete. I was just going to say that one of the main distinctions that we see in pubs derives from the age of the sort of coaching era, doesn't it? With the sort of the bar and the, the saloon. Absolutely. I mean, uh, I wrote a book called Shakespeare's Local about the Georgian in, in Southwark, which is uh, just worth going to see. It's the last galleried coaching inn in, in London. And learning about that, you get this very specific thing. The stagecoach age only lasted for, I think it was about 50 years, but it's left this indelible mark on our national history and on the history of the pub. I mean, you see a decent old inn somewhere and it's got pictures of stagecoaches up and stuff, but yeah, there were different bars. There was one bar for the, the people who traveled uh, on the outside of the coach, clinging to the roof or whatever. And the people who were, were driving the coaches and another bar for the, for the guests who were inside the coach. And you might get the same beer served at different, in each different bar but it would be much more expensive in the in the room that catered to the guests inside the coach so you get that class system thing yeah i I spoke before about how the pub is the pub is a place where it's the only place in british society for a long time where people from different social strata would meet um but for a lot of the time uh even when they had to be in the same establishment out of necessity they started to become some kind of separation so that our elders and betters could be in, in better surroundings than the rest of us so the George, which you briefly mentioned then, and, and that was the, the story of your, that you cover that story of that pub in your book, Shakespeare's Local, but Charles Dickens was a patron there as well, wasn't he? It was. I mean, if, if, you believe, if you believe the pubs of London, then Charles Dickens was a patron of every single one of them. I'm surprised he only ever got anything written. Um, but there is evidence of, of Dickens being in the George. Um, it was a really interesting setup, actually. That, that length of uh, Borough High Street in, in Southwark and South London, uh, London Bridge was for a long time the only bridge across the Thames. Uh, so if you wanted to kind of get over uh, into the city from the south, you had this massive bottleneck at the south side of London Bridge. And so there's a whole string of these giant coaching inns. And in the history of literature, possibly the most important stretch of street in the in the country is the stretch where you had um, the White Hart the George and the Tabard uh, next door to each other. The Tabard is where Chaucer um, set, started, began the Canterbury Tales. Uh, the, the White Hart is where Dickens set um, some of the most important scenes of Pickwick Papers and where Shakespeare set some key scenes in, uh, I think it's, oh, I can't remember which of the King plays it is. I think it's Henry the Fourth, part two. Um, so, and then Dickens, so you've got Dickens, Chaucer and Shakespeare basically all uh, visiting and writing about this set of three inns that stood next to each other on Borough High Street. Um, uh, and the George itself is in uh, Our Mutual Friend. Uh, it's not only featured glancingly, but uh, Dickens definitely definitely was, was seen drinking in there. There are reports of him in there. My, my favourite Charles Dickens story, and I can't remember if it's in your book or not, um, and I really hope it's true, is that he once jumped, jumped, through, the, jumped through the window of his wife-to-be's house dressed as a sailor suit did a jig whilst playing the hornpipe, jumped back out the window and then re-entered the room in his normal clothes as if nothing had happened. I've never heard that story. That wasn't from one of my books. <laughs> a, I, really, I so really want that to be true. Me but too. We, we, we've deviated a little bit. So coaching inns, 
Um, I think we've covered them, but they were killed off by the development of the railways. Yeah, almost instantly, almost instantly, it, within the space of a year, pretty much, when, when a railway came in. Railways were, were cheaper, uh, they were faster, and they were more comfortable than a stagecoach. So the stage, stagecoach might be a romantic idea, but why on earth would you, would you take one? Uh, when the train was available so we uh, we lost it and it's it's interesting reading looking at over dickens lifetime actually because the pickwick papers his first novel is all about stagecoaches and half the action is set in coaching inns and then of course he lived to see uh, stagecoaches die off altogether and railways come in and cities turn to smoggy uh, sooty kind of hell pits basically so that's ale houses and coaching inns which leaves tavern taverns yeah the the, the kind of posher cousin of of the alehouse really um it was tavern sold wine as much as as beer and despite kind of what we might think for a long time we've been really big wine drinkers in the uk uh spanish, spanish. sherry and sack uh, port all that kind of stuff and so more upper class people would drink in taverns stay separate from from uh, alehouses and they would probably drink wine while, while they were there so in my mind then, when I think about a tavern, I get an image of a sort of timber-framed, oldie-worldie-type building. It's dark yeah. and it's got lanterns that are lit hanging out, hanging out the front. But I'm sort of imagining a cross there between a coaching and an alehouse, aren't I? I guess so, yeah. You know, tavern's going to be a lot more urban. Um, these are the places where people like Samuel Pepys used to go and get drunk and stuff. Um, I mean, there were tavern... Uh, sorry, they were, they were timber clad in, in that every single building would have been at the time. It's an interesting fact, actually, about pubs is that a lot of the architecture uh, and visual aspects that we associate with traditional pubs used to be common for any kind of commercial establishment. All, all shops used to have signboards outside, hanging signboards, the way that pubs do now. But pubs just held on to a lot of this imagery uh, a long, long time after everywhere else kind of uh, dropped and moved on. Which very nicely brings us on to pub names, actually. I always think it's slightly weird that you go everywhere else you go in the world, every sort of drinking establishment has sort of got bar or cafe in the sort of title. Yet we don't have pub in ours. And it must be really confusing for people to come over here and look for things like the yeah. Red Lion or something like that. Yeah, it goes back to, yeah, for most of history, um, most of the people who used pubs uh, were illiterate. So we had to have signs instead of names. And where pub names have come from is basically from people talking about what the sign represents so we start off with very very simple signs you know the the white rose uh, the white heart the the red lion the king's head um all those names are common because of you know they were very easy signs to draw and people would recognize what the picture was so you know i will meet you at the sign of the red rose was was where was how we started to navigate by pubs and i think it's testament to how important the pub was in, in British social life that, we, uh, that we've held on to that, really, that there's never really been a need, need to change it. No, definitely. And what's, what's the, the best slash most unusual pub names that you've come across? Oh, there's one... Oh, I'm not going to remember it. The, the longest pub name in the UK is the name of... It's like the, the regimental standard captain bearer of the Northamptonshire Regiment or something. That's not it, but it's, it's something as, as long as that. I think we went through a, fray, a phase in the 80s and 90s of, um, of kind of self-parody with pub names. You've got all those new chains like Slug and Lettuce and Rat and Parrot and, and things like that, uh, which, were, which were wacky for the sake of being wacky. Uh, so I would rule them out. Um, but I'm... That's my usual thing. I'm struggling to think of the best one off the top of my head. 
when I was growing up, I, I mean, we used to go to we used to go to Rugeley, and I used to make my dad go to this pub just because it was called the Bull and Spectacles, and that was before they were sort of <laughs> renamed in a slug and lettuce type way as well. But actually, the actual pub itself was quite nondescript, and I googled it yesterday, and it doesn't seem to have changed that much. Actually, sorry if they're listening, but uh... <laughs> <laughs> how many red lions are there? That is the most common pub name in the UK. Uh, before lockdown, there were about four thousand of them. There's now none in operation. <laughs> Not for a moment. Times. There's a there is a woman who visited every red lion uh, in the country and survived to write a book about it. She must have been absolutely twatted. <laughs> okay, moving on now. If we step go forward a couple of hundred years and head to the Industrial Revolution, what effect did the Industrial Revolution have on beer? It, I mean, it transformed it really. Uh, a lot of the key. Uh, developments in the Industrial Revolution were picked up by beer before they were by many other places, really. you got to appreciate that at this time, beer was like the, the, the liquid soul of the nation. Um, it wasn't uh, the discretionary thing that it is today. Uh, you did have to drink beer uh, instead of unsafe drinking water. And beer was also a viable source of nutrients as well. You know, We were all drinking gallons a day of the stuff. And so some brewers who were already brewing at a certain scale the ones that took advantage of the industrial revolution first grew bigger and bigger um so if you think about the application of steam power to drive breweries it's a, brewing is a is a brewing at scale is a very physical process there's a lot of work to be done uh, a lot of breweries used to be um organized to run on gravity so you'd, you'd start off by hauling all that heavy grain up to the very top floor of the brewery uh mashing in in a vessel at the top and then running off from that to a vessel on the floor below and so on and so on until you're finally finishing it off uh, on the ground floor. So as soon as you could get devices that could take the manual work out of getting all that grain up onto the top floor, that was, that was a, a godsend. And then there's, you've got the quality aspect of it. You know, you want to be controlling the temperature really precisely. So thermometers, uh, saccharometers to measure sugar content, uh, microscopes to check the action of, of, of microbes in the beer. All of these things, each one of them when it came along, was an absolute revolution in brewing. Uh, and the brewers who adopted them first, it got to the point very quickly where they were able to grow in scale by such an extent that smaller brewers, it was cheaper for them to buy beer from the bigger brewers than it was to, to try and brew it themselves. And also, as you said, the scientific developments that allowed them to ensure that the pints were much more consistent yeah i mean this is um I, I used to work in marketing and you know the promise of a brand is being able to offer the same thing again and again if you buy heinz tomato ketchup or cadbury's dairy milk you don't want one pack of it to taste different from the last one did and as you've already said you know in beer that was it was potluck where it's going to taste like so as soon as technology allowed you consistency that's when you can have beer brands and we look at a lot of these big global brands like uh, Heineken or uh, Carlsberg or brands like that so many of them have got dates uh, in the 1870s or 1880s uh, and that's when Pasteur's technology uh, around studying microorganisms allowed them that consistency and so that's when you get these brands firstly being able to grow to a level a scale that no one's ever seen before uh, but also being able to say no we can put a brand name on this because this bottle of Heineken is going to taste at least pretty close to how the last bottle of Heineken tasted. And the branding bit's important. I was going to come on to that in the Burton bit, but we can probably cover it off now in that um, Bass at the time was regarded um, in the mid 18th century as like the best beer in the best beer in the world. And everyone tried to copy it to the extent 
people just used to pass off inferior brews as bass. And they used to stamp the bass red triangle on their barrels, even though it wasn't bass. So bass took um, action to counteract that, didn't they? Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Yeah, you go back to this this fact that we were all illiterate at the time, and so beer names and and brands were basic shapes, or they were you know a lot of beers get things like called four X or triple X or things like that. That's easy, you know, we can just kind of see what that is on on the barrel, and so Bass adopted this symbol of the red triangle, really simple, really recognisable, um, and there was nothing to stop other people saying, yeah, this is Bass, this is a red triangle. So in the UK, when the trademark office opened for the first time ever on the 1st of January, 1876, the guy from Bass was sitting on the doorstep waiting. So the oldest trademark in the UK, second oldest in the world, is, is Bass Ale. And then just, just going back to what we talked about, I thought it's quite interesting that you know, we generally regard beer as just um, as something to drink with a view to getting drunk, some of us anyway, not looking at Johnny <laughs> in um, But at the time of the Industrial Revolution, it was, it was regarded as sort of a dietary requirement, wasn't it? I noticed in your book you mentioned that you know, and children in St. Bartholomew's and St. Bartholomew's and Christ hospitals in the 17th century were drinking three pints a day. Yeah, there's this great thing called small beer. So as we talked about, you pass all that water through the grain, you rinse all that sugar out of it, uh, you make um, a, a good potent brew of beer. If you want, you can then kind of put another load of water through it and get off a much weaker one. If you think about making a, making a second cup of tea with the same tea bag, which, uh, which I promise I never do. Uh, being from Yorkshire, it wouldn't work. Um, <laughs> but uh, but if, you, you know, if you think about the, pre- process of, the premise of that, making a second cup of tea with the same tea bag, I think oh, you're going to get a weaker, waterier version of the original. We used to do that with brewing. And that would give you a, a beer that's about 1% or 2% alcohol you could drink that as much as you wanted and you would never get drunk off it. Um, but it's, it's clean. Uh, it's nutritious. It's got calories in it. It's got B vitamins in it. Uh, and so it was given out to people convalescing in hospital. It was given out to kids at school. It was given out to people working in workhouses. Uh, it was just, um, an essential thing. I, th- I think one of the things about beer being taken for granted is it gets taken for granted the same way we take uh, air or water for granted. There, there was so it was so common you just didn't notice it anymore. Uh, it was just beer. It was it was part of life. It was just there uh, every day. Well, also people who worked in sort of hot manual hot manual industry sort of thing. You know, I, I think I read in your book that people who worked in foundries they could lose twenty pounds of sweat a day, and as That's a result, it. they they drank up to twenty pints of beer in a shift. Yeah, and when you look at a lot of um, 
I mean, not so much now, but if you were to go back 50 years or so, the, the most celebrated brands in the UK, beer brands, would have been those from big industrial areas. I still think now the, the West Midlands, places like Wolverhampton, uh, where you've got Banks's and Banks has got one of the, one of the last remaining uh, commercial successful uh, milds uh, going. And I think Banks' milds about 3%, but you had a, a big glass blowing industry around there. And if you're blowing glass, the, the water is literally just pouring out of you. you, you could uh, People would come out of glass blowing factories and drink 10 pints of beer on the way home uh, at night. And, and get back up for work in the, the, the next morning. And certainly when I was growing up at the start of my drinking career uh, in Barnsley, there was still a, a mining industry back then. And it was really interesting because that culture still held on then. Blokes had been down the pit, would, would drink a lot of beer afterwards. But whereas by the time I was in my 20s, uh, being drunk was seen as something that was pretty cool. When I was growing up, if you, if you showed any signs of drunkenness, despite having drunk 10 pints of beer, you'd get this sad shake of the head. It's like, oh, look at him, he can't take his ale. So the point was to be able to drink without getting drunk because it was a, it was a manly thing to do. It's a manly thing to be able to hold your ale. Uh, and you needed to do it because of, uh, as you said, for, for recovering from work. So th- during this time period, the 18th and 19th century, porter was probably the most popular beer. So yeah. what is porter and why did it prove so popular? Support is a it's a dark beer. It's very malty. Um, it's uh, it had almost disappeared when I started writing Man Walks into a Pub, and I'm I'm glad to say the craft beer boom has brought it back again. It's kind of the forerunner of Guinness. Um, Guinness we, we call stout. Uh, it's called stout because it was originally called extra stout porter. It's stronger, thicker porter, uh, and it was a. I still don't know why it was so popular. It's interesting because if you if you were to give a pint of it now to a lot of beer drinkers, they would say, "Oh, it's a bit dark. It's a bit flavourful. It's a bit complex for me. I prefer something a bit less complicated." But we drank that by the absolute bucket load. We drank that to far, far in far greater volumes than anyone who uh, drinks beer today. And it coincided with the industrialization of, of British cities. Uh, it was the perfect drink when you're coming out uh, after, after a long day in a factory, um, eat, drinking in a new pub with, with all your mates. And it was a beer that benefited from being brewed in really large batch sizes. The bigger you could brew it, the more consistent it was. Um, and the more consistent it was, the more you were going to sell it. So it, 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 Porter was the beer that first turned brewing from like a, a cottage industry into something, an, an industry that we recognise today. Um, one of my favourite stories involving Porter and those large bats that you've just mentioned is the London Bear Flood of 1814. Yeah. Can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, so Porter used to be made, uh, it used to age for about a year. So you'd build these big vats and uh, then the beer would sit there for a year, uh, getting this incredible complexity. And um, like I said, if you're going to age beer for a year, then the bigger scale you can do it on, the more economic to do it is. And there started to be, a, at the end of the 18th century, there started to be an arms race to see who could uh, build the biggest porter vats. And it became fashionable to, to complete the construction of a new vat and then have dinner inside it before it was filled with beer so i think the biggest one uh, seated a dinner for 200 people uh, inside this inside this wooden vat so that was all fine and well but um there was a a, a brewery the mer brewery in uh, london uh, the the theater dominion theater where um, we will rock you was on for a long time 
uh, at the bottom of Tottenham Court Road in central London. That was the site of this brewery, and it was a uh, it was in the middle of quite a poor area. Um, in what's what's now Hoban, it was a place called the Rookery, which was just real bad slums, loads of people crammed in on top of each other. And these portavats were held together by wooden hoops, five inches, sorry, wooden barrels, but then uh, iron hoops that were five inches thick. And one day a workman noticed a crack in one of these hoops, thought, oh, it's five inches thick, a little crack's nothing to worry about. And then a few hours later, there was an explosion as this vat collapsed. There was another vat next to it. The force of the explosion uh, exploded that vat as well. And so basically a tidal wave of beer, uh, millions and millions of pints, swept through this densely crowded part of London. It swept people, it swept in through one window of houses, picked people up and swept them out of the window at the other side of the house um, and just left this this pool of beer that was that extended for, for, for miles and killed about, uh, I, think, I think in the end it killed about nine people. What a way to go, though. I know. But, I, but I also, get... didn't, didn't people end up stampeding towards it so they could try and drink out the gutters? Well, I, I went back for the, for the second edition of my walks into a pub. I, I went back to, uh, by this time, I was trying to do history properly rather than just uh, being a complete amateur. Uh, <laughs> and, and, and I went back to the um, to British Library and searched out the newspapers reporting the incident. And it's really interesting. It's actually, it's not true that people were doing that, but it's this kind of class uh, thing to attack poorer working class people. So there were lots of stories going around about um, people rushing to to drink themselves silly with this beer in the street. Uh, in the first edition of Man Walks Into a Pub, I've talked about how uh, the bodies were taken to a house to be identified by their relatives. Um, there was a smell of beer coming out of this place that was really strong. So then a riot started because people thought that people in one part of this place were getting beer and other people weren't. And then so many people crowded in uh, to see these bodies, to see what people looked like when they'd been dead, killed by beer, that the house collapsed and killed even more people. None of that is true. Uh, p- people gave those accounts at the time, but none of it was verified. And none of it makes into the Times coverage of the incident at the time. So as usual, you know, the best stories in history often turn out to be complete bullshit, unfortunately. But it's still a great yeah. story. It is a great, it is a great story. Uh, and around the same period as well, in the 17th and 18th century, I mean, as Alex has said, she doesn't like beer. She mainly drinks gin. But as we've seen when Alex, with Alex when she goes out, gin could cause problems. <laughs> and it did in Britain in the 18th century. Yeah, Alex would have loved it back then. Uh, it was... Uh, it was uh, Thanks to uh, thanks to our eternal wars with the French, uh, brandy was a bit too popular for the liking of the, uh, the British government. So they, they slashed taxes on gin. Um, and uh, said everyone should be drinking that instead of drinking brandy or port or, or French wine. And people took to it really enthusiastically. Uh, you know, if you're living in slums and life is not worth living and uh, you're facing appalling hardship and poverty, then gin is a pretty nice way to forget that. And gin is cheaper than beer. <laughs> gin, gin was cheaper than beer so and because it was just the poor no one really cared that they were drinking themselves to death there's a, there's a lot of horror stories Hogarth very famously painted uh, Gin Lane uh, which I've seen parodied quite recently actually in fact Cold War Steve has just done a parody of, uh, of, of Gin Lane uh, with Boris sitting on the steps and loads of babies falling to their deaths uh, it's an incredible picture a really vivid tableau 
but it came with a, I didn't know until I started researching my own since pub, it was part of a pair and Gin Lane comes with Beer Street, which is an inversion of the same image. In Gin Lane, everyone's poor and everyone's dying except the pawnbroker and the undertaker. They're doing really well. And in Beer Street, the pawnbroker's gone bust. The undertaker doesn't have any business. Everybody else is really uh, happy and joyful and, and healthy and, and getting on with themselves. But it was only when uh, we were trying to pull an army together and there weren't enough working class men of who were capable of fighting that the government realized that they needed to do something and uh oh it took them about 40 years to get it under control there were there were three different gin crazes uh and eventually after about 30 years they managed to kind of pull it back together pull it under taxation and 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 stop the stop the epidemic but it was it was a bigger epidemic than than anything we've had since so we've seen how popular Porter was, but then um, I grew up near Burton-on-Trent, as we've already discussed, and it was Burton that played the biggest part in switching us from a nation that drank Porter into sort of a, a, a different beer. Yeah, um, it's, it sounds really weird because Burton is a, a landlocked town in the middle of the Midlands, uh, and it's the most important beer exporting town in the history of global brewing. And this is a style of bit that went to India. I mean, everything went to India. We had the, the East India Company out there. Uh, ships were going out nearly empty and coming back laden with uh, riches and fabrics and all sorts of stuff. And so we put everything, anything on the ships that we could think of putting on that people in India, British people in India might, might want to buy. And beer turned out to be pretty popular. And so this style of beer developed. Lots of people ask me who invented IPA, India Pale Ale, or when it was invented. It wasn't. It emerged. It, it evolved from these strong beers these strong kind of barley wine style beers that were kept for aging and kept for special occasions there's a brewer called hodgson in uh, the east end of london who had a monopoly over sending beer to india but then he he started he, he cut all his credit rates for the captains of the east india company and he got into trouble with the east india company which is not to be recommended if you've if you've got a private corporation with its own army and its own navy uh, that's a hundred times bigger than any other corporation in the world. It's best not to piss them off if you're just a one-man show running a brewery. So the East India Company basically went to Burton. Burton had a reputation for brewing beers that exported really well, that survived really well on, on long sea journeys. And uh, and so the, the head of the East India Company said, do you think you could brew this London beer uh, to a guy called um, Samuel Allsop and his brewer, Job Goodhead? And... Uh, and he said, yeah, I don't know why you'd want to brew it. This, because it's too bitter, it's horrible, but we could do it. And so they brewed it. They sent that beer to India. And on the journey, it, something strange happens to it. It, it mellows out. It matures. In, in all the contemporary accounts from India, uh, when it arrived, they would, they would discuss it in terms of say, this beer has ripened to perfection. So whatever they meant by ripening, uh, the voyage from uh, Burton to India, which took about six months, uh, caused this effect to happen in the beer whereby it was ready when it arrived it was a different beer than the beer that had set off and it wasn't the only beer that went to india there's a lot of porter drunk in india as well but it captured the imagination like nothing else had before and burton became the world's most important town uh, in brewing and um, one of the reasons that burton became important for brewing is because of the water that's available there now, I, I, as long as I was growing up, I always remember hearing about the Burton water. I like yeah. to imagine it was like the purest, freshest, the type of water that Evian is aiming to be sort of thing. <laughs> but 
but you've had a sip of it haven't you and that's not the case yeah it's not pure at all it's absolutely full of uh, sulfates that that's what makes it so good so at its strongest it, it varies on from well to well really but at its strongest it's got that sulfurous uh whiffy egg odor um that you sometimes get in beers it that's, used to that's, ca- that's known as the burton snatch by the I way i was gonna say yes yeah <laughs> it's it, known affectionately as the burton snatch um which I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm sure you can uh, interpret however you want, but it was, it's, it's not so prevalent anymore. Uh, it used to still be able to get it in Marston's pedigree and get an idea of it, this kind of eggy sulfurousness, uh, but they've sort of blanded that out a little bit now. Um, and, and yeah, the, the water, the sulfates in the water really interact with the hops in a really brilliant way uh, that, that helps keep this character of beer really crisp and clean. If you're, try, if you're trying to brew a lager, with Burton spring water, it would taste absolutely horrible. But if you're trying to brew a strong hoppy pale ale, it's the absolute perfect water to be brewing it with. Of course, no one realized this because we didn't have chemical water analysis uh, until much later. And it was Burton scientists who uh, developed this water analysis because they wanted to know why their beers were, were so amazing. And the issue there was that before that happened, every, every reputable brewer in the country had to come to Burton and open up a satellite brewery. If you wanted to brew pale ale, you had to brew it in Burton or you wouldn't be able to sell it. And so the scientists come out and they go, we've done it, we've cracked it, we've found out what makes Burton beer so special, it's the water. And here's the chemical formula of all the sulfates that, and salts that are in the water. And the world of brewing said, thank you very much for that. And they went away and invented a process called Burtonization, which is just adding those salts to any water that you get anywhere else. And that was the end of Burton's dominance as, as a brewing town. No one needs to go there anymore. No, it's, it's an incredible story. And then going back to um, pale ale and its, export, its, its sort of uh, export to India, in, in your book, Hops and Glory, you actually recreated an old brew and then transported it to India, didn't you? Yeah, yeah, we brewed in Burton-on-Trent. Uh, I got on a canal boat one morning uh, and set off from Burton, got as far as rugby uh, on the canal boat, got on a train, and then took uh, three different ships uh, to India, on a route to India, to, to recreate the old journey, which took me about uh, three months. And then, isn't it correct, wasn't it the night before you ended up sort of toasting your journey by opening and trying a 138-year-old beer? Yes, uh, that beer has just celebrated its a hundred and yeah, it's just celebrated its hundred and fiftieth anniversary. Uh, I was up in a, an event in Burton last December. There's a, an unknown number of bottles of it left. It was a beer called uh, Ratcliffe Ale. Uh, so Bass Brewing uh, at that time was known as Bass Ratcliffe in Gretton. Uh, Mr. Ratcliffe had a. It was a common practice at the time. Mr. Ratcliffe had a newborn son, and uh, in eighteen. Um, 79 i think it is and the common practice then was you you, you brew a very strong beer to, to be aged for, you know, for laying down uh, which the son then opens on his majority which would be his 21st birthday the legend has it that young ratcliffe never lived that long uh, he died before his 21st birthday and so this beer never got opened for his big 21st party and so it just sat there in cellars all around burton aging away and uh, it's still in good nick today it's a it's a remarkable beer if you can find it what did it taste of? Well, it, you get these common flavour uh, things that develop in beer. Um, if you think about a, a really uh, rich Madeira wine, which actually has the same uh, origin story that uh, IPA does. It, it went on the same journey, on the same ships from Madeira to, to India and back again to get that ageing aspect to it. And um, What that's got in common, people often 
to talk about Madeira when they taste beers like this because it's got those kind of dried fruits, that kind of raisiny character, um, uh, a bit of kind of Christmas cake. Um, you get uh, what a lot of people call Marmite. And I, I know why they say it. It's a kind of yeasty, dark, slightly meaty, very umami taste. Um, it's not Marmite because I can't stand Marmite and I love these beers, uh, but it's, it's kind of in that, in that zone. And, and the thing about it is it's a, that, that flavour acts as a, as a sine curve over the years. You, you might taste it one year and it just tastes like really old stale beer and you think that, that's it, it's gone off. Five years later, it might taste beautiful and fresh again. And the best brewing minds in the world are, are still exploring this to try and figure out why that happens. I feel a bit bad now because I tipped a 2014 Hommel beer down the sink the other day because I thought it might be bad for me, but maybe I should have left it. <laughs> I, would, I would leave any sediment in the bottom, but, uh, but yeah, it might have, been, uh, might have been pretty good. Next time. Okay, so we've talked about the 19th century in terms of brewing, and then how did pubs change in the 19th century? Well, it's interesting for pubs because in 1830, you, you got the uh, Beer Act which meant that for a price of two guineas, anybody could uh, open a pub. And so suddenly every third house in the street in, in big cities was a pub. Um, and this led to, as you might imagine, uh, quite a lot of drinking, uh, a, bit, a big increase in drunken behaviour. Even Beer's biggest fans were, were kind of despairing at how people were rolling around in the streets. And, and so that set the course, really, for this idea that uh, we were all drinking too much and drinking ourselves to death. So we started to get more and more regulation. Um, on beer a lot of those pubs didn't survive and about in the 1880s the amount of beer that we were drinking started to peak uh, we we started to get more responsible we started to do jobs that uh, required us not to be hung over or still drunk or, or whatever and so for the first time brewers weren't growing uh, just by because people were buying more and more beer they were buying less beer so brewers started buying up the pubs that sold their beer and tying them uh, so that the breweries, despite where the breweries would float on the stock market, use that money to buy hundreds of pubs. And then they had to kind of start competing to get people to come into their pub rather than the other pubs in the street. And so that's when decoration in pubs goes from being strictly utilitarian uh, to being more and more gaudy. And so we get the age of the gin palace, where you, you have these huge uh, glass globes outside onto the street, uh, inside you get etched mirrors, uh, lots of ornate carving and that kind of thing. Um, there's a brilliant example in Belfast where uh, some Italian architects came over to, to build a church and this pub owner across the square from the church uh, would basically grab the, the builders that came off shift and, and ply them with drink if they'd do a bit more decoration in his pub. And so you get these really ornate places, which caused massive upset. I mean, obviously the moral guardians of the day would say, well, <coughs> excuse me the moral guardians of the day would say well we can't be having this because this is attracting people to pubs uh and they're drinking too much i think when you read some of the contemporary accounts it was much more that poor people should not have access to this kind of beauty because they wouldn't appreciate it and didn't deserve it because they they are absolutely beautiful places there, there are a few that are still around that are really celebrated and they're wonderful places just to, to stand and go up the philharmonic in uh, Liverpool is an outrageous place with pink marble urinals and, and things like this. Um, the, the Salisbury in London, St. Martin's Lane, really well-preserved interiors. And this was the only, the only beauty uh, that a lot of people would have, would have got in their lives. The only, the only time they got to spend uh, in, in surroundings like that. 
And also the vessels that we drank out of, they changed in the 19th century as well, didn't they? Yeah, you had, the, you had glass suddenly becoming more affordable. Uh, so for the first time, we could actually see the beer that we were drinking, uh, which had a couple of massive effects. Uh, people had been adding all sorts of crap to beer, to, to iron filings to give it a head and uh, alum to make it taste more bitter and stuff. And suddenly you could see what the beer looked like. And this is another thing that really helps us move from porter to pale ale. Actually being able to see through the liquid in your glass and for, for it to shine the way that a really great beer does these days uh, was a revolution. Okay, and then now on to the next section, which I've called Beer in the Wars. So you can probably see where this is going. Um, during the First World War, and probably somewhat unfairly, beer didn't have the greatest of wars. And the effects of this can still be seen today. Yeah, so... Um, there's a lot going on uh, within the First World War. One big thing was that we were reliant on um, shipments of food from the States. Um, and it was a torpedoing of, of American grain ships, I think, that actually brought America into the war for the first time late on. And it, people were taking a very dim view if that food was coming over here and then being used to brew beer instead of baked into loaves of bread or whatever. Uh, so there's a lot of pressure to, to curtail drinking. Uh, people working in armaments factories um, were, were not turning up for work on a Monday and we weren't making enough bullets. So a lot of restrictions came in. Lloyd George wanted to ban uh, alcohol altogether. Uh, America was well on its way to prohibition by this time. By the time America had prohibition, I think most states over there had already introduced it on a, on a voluntary basis. Um, so we were, we were heading in that direction, but then the October Revolution happened in um, in Russia, and one of the causes of that apparently was people being denied vodka, and it was like, right, you can take away a lot of stuff, but you can't take our booze away, and and there was the possibility of Russian uh, of, of communist revolution in uh, the UK as well, particularly around Liverpool, and so Lloyd George was persuaded instead of uh, going for total prohibition. Uh, which could well have made everything kick off in the UK, uh, to just basically really restrict the sale of alcohol and to restrict uh, the strength of the strength of alcohol. The strength of beer went down from about 7% to about 25 3 uh, over the course of the war. Uh, buying a round was banned. Uh, it was called treating, and you weren't allowed to buy a round. So one bloke ended up in prison uh, for buying his wife a drink uh, in the pub. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so, so a lot of things changed, and beer never really recovered. We talk now about British beer having this kind of characteristically lower strength. That is directly a product of of the First World War, and also the like the licensing laws. The reason pubs used to close at eleven o'clock when bars would stay open till two, three, whenever around the rest of the world was that these licensing laws were brought in for the First World War and stuck around for another seventy, eighty years. Oh, that's it. You didn't get sort of. Sunday afternoon opening. It was my final year at university in 1994 or 1995 when you could, you know, finally get a drink at four o'clock on a Sunday afternoon. Yes, I can remember that day. I can remember the first Sunday that the, the afternoon opening came in. It was absolute carnage. I think um, <laughs> I think England had just beaten Australia in the rugby for the first time in God knows how long. Um, if I notice, I'm getting mixed up. No, this was this was before all afternoon opening came in, and England beat Australia in the rugby. And the final whistle went at 10 to 3 at the same time as last orders. And so everyone's trying to celebrate and the pubs are closing at 3 o'clock. Far better that those people can then stay in the pub and drink through the afternoon, not drink as quickly and, and stay indoors where they're, where they're going to do less damage. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, beer and brewing gets an unfair rap in the First World War. You know, I mean, lots in Burton, lots of employees enlisted. I think Bass even donated horses to the army. And even one of the directors of Bass, he was the commanding officer, 
commanding officer of the six North staffs and went into combat with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, brewers are absolute pillars of, of their community. Um, and Burton's a great example of, of how brewing basically supports an entire town. Most of the municipal buildings in Burton on Trent were built by brewers. Um, brewery regiments have always uh, been very uh, quick to, to sign up and, and, and do their duty. Uh, and this is, of course, how you, how you first get women working in, in commercial breweries, in industrial breweries for the first time, to fill the, the gaps left by the men that have gone. Yeah, because the, the Six North Staffs, that's a territorial regiment, a territorial battalion, and it's based around Burton. But basically, that was like a pals battalion for people in, who worked in the breweries, although it doesn't get the credit of, you know, some more famous northern pals battalion, shall we say. Mm. I, haven't, I, haven't, uh, I haven't researched that bit, but uh, it's, yeah, it's, it, it, it's seemed fairly typical. But there's, there was a decline, wasn't there, in people visiting pubs between the wars? Yeah, and this is... Um, so, I mean, beer had gone out of fashion because of the measures in the First World War. But on top of that, the, the period between the wars is when the home actually starts to become uh, a relatively pleasant place to spend time. Part of the reason that we're so uh, wedded to, to our pubs is that for most of our history uh, in this country, the pub was the only place where you could get warm. It was the only place where there were lights. Um, your home is probably a bed uh, with too many people trying to sleep in it uh, without anything else other than kind of really the crudest creature comforts, really. And in the, in the 20s, you start to get the wireless, you start to get uh, reliable lighting uh, in the home, you start to get comfortable carpets, affordable furniture, that kind of thing, uh, as well as the growth of cinema. And so for the first time in history, uh, there were alternatives to just going to the pub every night. And then in the Second World War, I think it's fair to say beer had a better war, didn't it? It certainly did. I mean, at the start of the First World War, I keep getting them mixed up. At the start of the Second World War, people thought that we were going to get a repeat uh, of the first. But um, that's not dealing with the fact that Churchill really liked a drink. And uh, he's famous for his spirits consumption, but he loved beer as well. Uh, and he also saw its strategic importance, its, um, its importance in terms of morale. I think by this point, the British pub was a, a symbol of, of the British spirit. And, and if, if the pubs closed, that meant that Hitler had won. So there was this really big uh, drive for pubs to stay open and to serve beer as normally as possible. Plus the fact that a lot of landlords were suspicious um, they could still remember a lot of them, uh, the First World War. And they thought that if they, if a result of bombing or shortages or whatever, that if they closed, it was a condition of their license that if they said they were going to open on these hours, if they were applying for a license to open at certain hours, that if they then refused or didn't open during those hours, they could have their license taken away. So you get this spectacle of pubs that have been completely bombed out, uh, clearing a bit of space in the rubble, putting two uh, beer barrels uh, with a plank between them and opening for business. And the photos of that now, it's like, look at look as our spirit can't be beaten. It was also, I'd better open, even though this is ridiculous, because otherwise I might lose my license, which was, it turned out to be a completely unfounded fear, um, but it did produce this extraordinary uh, resilience in, in pubs. And also, I mean, Churchill ensured that each British soldier received a beer ration, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, one of my favourite things about the Second World War is... Um, you know, we were fighting uh, in countries, we're fighting through countries that are famous uh, for the quality of, of drink they produce. Um, but it was all that foreign continental lager. We weren't having any of that for the fighting British, British man. So, yeah, Churchill mandated that every man fighting at the front would, uh, would get his ration of eight 
uh, of, of eight uh, cans of beer, eight bottles of beer a week before anybody at the rear got a drop. And, and that I love, was I love, that, I love the fact that with that, though, if you compare it to uh, sick children from the 18th century, and the sick children from the 18th century are still out drinking these brave Tommies. Yes, yes, a mere eight, a mere eight cans a week. Uh, your average four-year-old in the 18, in the 16th century got through that in the morning. Um, but uh, yeah, so we got that. And then my favourite images uh, in the Imperial War Museum are of uh, Spitfires carrying Mitchell's and Butler's beer uh, to the front, landing in Normandy with beer barrels strapped under their wings. Um, and with notes on them saying, when it's empty, please replace the cork and send it back. And, and the barrels actually got back to the brewery in Birmingham. In the middle of all the chaos of establishing a presence in Normandy, they had time to get these wooden beer barrels back to a brewery in Birmingham, which I just think shows you uh, everything you need to know about uh, our devotion to beer, basically. It certainly had their priorities right. And then one small little nugget that I picked out of your book was that there was a, an outbreak of the theft of glasses from pubs in the Second World War. Oh, I'd forgotten that bit. Um, sorry, I totally forgot that bit. Yep. You, you, write that one, you write that um, one pub started the night with 325 glasses and ended up with 11. <laughs> God, it's been a long time since I read that book. Uh, but <laughs> it, 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 stands, it stands to reason. It stands to reason. Um, uh, I guess it wasn't just students back in those days, uh, nicking glasses. Uh, they'd have been very vital if you were uh, scrabbling for every single thing you could get. So moving on from the war then, I mean, post-war Britain saw attempts to get more women into pubs with specifically targeted drinks. And one casualty of this, which took a bit of time to recover, was lager. Yeah. Um, so after the Second World War, you've got big uh, lager breweries uh, on the continent, someone like Carlsberg in Denmark or Heineken in the Netherlands, they, they'd won the battle in their own countries and they were, you know, they've got like 90% market share or something like this in, in some countries. And just across the channel, the North Sea, you've got this market of massive beer drinkers who are not drinking lager. The rest of the world has switched from different kinds of ale to drinking cold, refreshing lager and Britain and some parts of Belgium are the only parts of the drinking world that have held out and they're still drinking traditional ale. And so they tried everything they could to, uh, to try and crack the market. You know, we, for some reason, we, we were really slow on getting into the idea of refrigeration. Uh, we didn't like it. Still, still, when I started drinking in pubs, it was rare to see a fridge behind the bar. Uh, things stored at room temperature and laggy, lager really doesn't want to be drunk at room temperature. And so they just tried strategy after strategy. They, and so they spent most of the 1960s um, with lager brands being positioned uh, as a drink for women, as a beer for women, with things like a blonde for a blonde as, as advertising strap lines and things like that. And it didn't work. I think they managed to increase uh, lager share of the market from something like 0.1% to 1% and spending millions and millions of pounds. You know, this is the decade when TV advertising really took off and there's, there's commercial breaks full of ads targeting lager at women and women just didn't want to know. Um, and so then they went back again and said, oh, everyone thinks lager's a drink for women. I don't know where you got that idea. It's not a drink for women at all. What are you thinking <laughs> of? And spent more millions of pounds trying to get gets to forget what they'd spent a decade telling us. I think since then we've seen even more of a there's been even more of a decline in pubs and breweries, and we've seen sort of the rise of you know, is it five or six sort of super breweries in the UK? 
It used to be uh, the big six. There was this massive consolidation uh, through the 50s and 60s. Until the 70s, you had six breweries controlling 80% of the market. Um, then what we got in 1989 was this thing, the beer orders. And I talked how in Victorian times, the pubs, uh, the pubs all got bought up by the brewers who supplied them. And in 89, the, the Tory government decided that it wasn't fair that uh, pubs were owned by brewers. The consumer deserved more choice. And so they said that breweries had to sell off uh, all their pub estates. Now, what happened was uh, breweries thought, right, beer's in decline. Uh, we make a very low margin off beer. Pubs are property. So instead of breweries selling off their pub estates, what happened is the pub estates got rid of their brewing capacity. Um, and so what you end up getting now is these massive pub codes. You also get lots of thousands of pubs going onto the market. Japanese investment banks buying 10,000 pubs at a time and this kind of thing. Um, and actually consumer choice shrank um, because now everybody's free to buy the biggest brands. Whereas you know, if you just go to Whitbread pub, you got Whitbread brands. You went to a Courage pub, you got Courage brands. Now any pub in the country could do a contract to buy Stella or Foster's or, or whatever beer they liked. So we've had a massive shrink in the number of available beer brands. Uh, we've got pubs being treated as property companies uh, owned by people who, you know, at least when the breweries owned them, they were proud of the beer they were selling and they wanted to sell good beer through those pubs. And people like Marston's uh, still own their pub estate, Green King for the time being, but they've just been bought by a, a Chinese investment bank. Um, and we're in a weird situation now where I think one of the UK's top 10 uh, beer brands is British owned. And if you go anywhere, any country in the world that drinks a lot of beer, the number one brand in the country is like a flag carrier. It's like having Frank Zappa said, to be a proper country, you've got to have some guns and an airline. A beer helps, uh, but at least you've got to have the airline. And, and countries have a, a flag carrier beer the same way they have a flag carrier airline. You know, if you go to the States, it's Budweiser. If you go to Greece, it's Mythos. Um, uh, Germany's a bit different because it's still very, very regionalized. And in the UK, We've got Carling, which is Canadian, Heineken, which is Dutch, Carlsberg, which is, uh, no, Heineken, which is, yeah, Heineken's Dutch. I'm going to start that again. In the UK, we've got Carling, which is Canadian. We've got uh, Heineken, which is Dutch. We've got Carlsberg, which is Danish. You've got Bud, uh, which is American, and so on and so on. Um, and I think John Smith's is in there at number eight in terms of the biggest brands. So we have this weird culture where we, we're recognized by everybody else as one of the leading brewing countries in the world, and we're the only people who don't think that. We're the only country in the world that thinks we'd better buy these other foreign brands because they're better than uh, the brands that British uh, brewers could create. Yeah, I mean, I, I, when, I, when I first started underage drinking, obviously Carling was in all the pubs when I grew up. But even then, as a 17-year-old, none of us none of us had Carling. We all just had, um, I think at the time, Bass used to brew Tenants Extra. So we used to drink that instead. Yeah, yeah. At least that's at least that's Scottish. So at least it's British. Yeah. Um, and Carl, it's Carling's fault, really, that that this all happened because it was a Canadian brand, but brought across by a guy called Eddie Taylor, uh, and he started buying pubs because he wanted places to flog Carling. And uh, 30, 40 years later, everyone Carling was so ubiquitous, everyone just assumed it was British, um, and we'd gone from pub companies being regional, town-specific or county-specific to having these big six national players. Because Taylor either bought them all up or people formed into big groups in the hope that Taylor wouldn't, wouldn't buy them, that they were too big to buy. So you get this, uh, this very sudden, very late, but very sudden uh, consolidation of the industry that is, is still happening um, and it's transformed things. And then craft beer, of course, is, is kind of on course to, 
to switch it back to how it was. Well, it was, but you've always had, you've already had things like, you know, Beaver Town were taken over by, I can't remember who they were taken over. That by. was Heineken, yeah. They were taken over by Heineken. You can sort of see it going that way again, a bit further as well, can't you? Yeah, it's a, it's a big debate, and that's 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 really what's inspired my, my latest book on craft beer. But um, uh, that was always going to happen. Uh, yeah, if if big brewers didn't come after craft beer, they wouldn't be doing their job. Um, and it, it's a very tricky situation as a as an industry commentator, because as a drinker, I mean, Beaver Town's one of my local breweries here in North London. They're about two miles away. Did I want Heineken to buy Beaver Town? Absolutely not. Um, I, I, I'm devastated that happened. But can I turn around to Logan Plant at Beavertown and say, oh, I'm a drinker of your products. You shouldn't be allowed to sell the business you've built up from nothing because that would, that would displease me. I mean, I'm, I'm, I, I, neither I nor any of the beer drinker has got the right to say that to somebody who's built this business from scratch. So it's a, it's a complicated issue. But there's still thousands. Well, well, until a couple of months ago, there were still thousands of of brewers around that are never going to sell out. That are trying to recreate this idea of beer being a localized product like it used to be until 50 years ago. Pete, when this when this is over, and let's assume there's no restrictions on travel, but what three pubs or bars would you visit and why? Right. So I've got. Uh, I tweeted about this the other day. I'm going to say this out loud. Uh, I promise you I'm not having an aneurysm. Uh, Cafe Pushinella Kelleda in, uh, in Brussels, uh, oh. which is <laughs> a cafe right by the mannequin piss, which is the most disappointing uh, national symbol uh, of any country in the world. Uh, but it's got it's such an amazing bar, and I'm going to have um, a uh, Taras Bulba in there. Uh, I'm not just saying this for you, Andrew, but um, the Cooper's Tavern in Burton-on-Trent that would be on my list. That would be on my list. It is my favourite um, urban pub in the UK. And uh, there's a sherry bar in Madrid where you get served sherry directly from wooden barrels behind the bar and they just chalk up um, what, what you've had in front of you and sherry and a bit of ham. So they're my three. I'm going on a, I'm, I'm going on a quick uh, European jaunt. I think I'll start in Brussels, pop down to Madrid and then head back to Burton for last orders. I would Sounds like good. to say that I hope this had cheered you up, not being able to get any beer um, home to <laughs> die, but I think it's just made you feel worse, hasn't it? <laughs> it's, there's, there's a certain craving for a pub, but oddly enough, I'm looking at the, uh, the business card of Potter and Linda Keller at this, at this moment in time. It's just sitting next to me on the table. So, <laughs> yeah, it would be very much appreciated to get back there at some point. I can only hope that you will get your pubs back soon. God knows I just want someone else to pour my gin and tonic for me just for the novelty of it. But Pete, <laughs> thanks so much for coming on to give us like the most comprehensive history of beer I've ever heard. Uh, Holmes, have you enjoyed yourself? It's been great. It's been great. Thanks, yeah. Pete. <laughs> Pleasure. You can go and read your new book now, Holmes, that arrived this morning. <laughs> it's, it's, it's in quarantine for two days. Can't be too careful. <laughs> oh, just put some bin liners over your hands or something. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks so much. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Peter Hart, Gary Bain and Josh Levine about World War One flyers. Uh, this is great. This is the four of us and Alina. He's not really paying much attention. Uh, sitting down to discuss World War One aviation. We started off uh, with a remit of sort of aces that we admire that people maybe don't know so much about. But we ended up moving on to people who aren't aces who contributed much to World War One flying and uh, talking about the advances in technology and other just changing stories of st great stuff we found doing our research. So join us for that. 
don't forget you can become a patron of history hack for as little as a dollar a month uh, you just have to go to www.historyhack.podbean.com uh, it'd be much appreciated as we'd like to keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus crisis planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.